Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we're in for a real treat because we're gonna talk about one of my favorite topics, vitamin D. And you're gonna learn a lot of insights that you probably didn't realize before and I certainly didn't before I read our author's book, Dr. Mark Sorensen, who wrote the book Embrace the Sun. In fact, the book is so good then in all the lectures I've given for the last six months and the ones coming up for this year, I've embedded a uh, copy of the cover of his book and encourage all the people attending my presentation to get a copy because it's really good. And vitamin D is at the core, is absolutely foundational core of optimizing your health. If you don't get that right, so many other things are just not gonna fall into place. And it's not, it is absolutely not, and I've said this before, but I'm gonna repeat it because it's worthwhile, not about swallowing a pill. It's about getting it from the sun the way all of our ancient ancestors were designed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I'm, I could go on for like an hour on this, Mark, but I, I, I want to have you, because there's so much good stuff here. So welcome and thank you for joining us. And perhaps begin by discussing the motivation for writing this great book. Well, you know, uh, when I was a young man, I was uh, running a world-class health resort. We were getting all kinds of wonderful things happening, like we had an average of 11.7 days to have two of every three diabetics off of all medication. Mm -hmm. Arteries, uh, heart disease reverse to where people did not have to have uh, operations bypass operations that we scheduled for. And I chalked it up all to good nutrition and a lot of exercise and so forth. After I actually sold that business and retired for a while, I began to realize that a lot of what was happening was due to the sunlight. And I got interested in vitamin D at that time, wrote a book in 2004 on vitamin D and updated a couple of years later. And you began to sell that book on your site at that time. And uh, now I've had like a, Another epiphany at this time, I had realized a few years ago that even though vitamin D was the most important photo product, and I uh, praised it to the nth degree, that probably sunlight was more important than vitamin D. And just like you said, I got the idea real quickly that you can't just take a vitamin D pill and, uh, what should we say, substitute for everything the sun does. In fact, things like heart disease, we're not seeing very good research when we take pills for it. But when we get out in the sun, the research is incredible. The risk of heart disease and uh, the risk of myocardial infarct drop dramatically uh, in the summertime and go up dramatically in the wintertime, meaning there's, there's something there uh, that has to be extra uh, beyond vitamin D because the vitamin D supplement studies with heart disease haven't worked that well. And so, what we know now is the main mover to prevent heart disease is probably nitric oxide, which is a potent vasodilator, as you know. And it vasodilates uh, the arteries, opens them up, so heart disease is less. Blood pressure can go down dramatically with regular sun exposure, which it does. And people that are, as I said, people who are using sunlight on a regular basis, their risk of dropping dead of a heart attack go down rather dramatically, whereas the vitamin D pill doesn't take that, doesn't do that. Now, I'm not saying anything against vitamin D. Vitamin D is the number one photo product that is produced by the sun. But if we think we can get the holistic sun, is what I, we get the benefits of the holistic sun by taking any one pill, whether it was for nitric oxide or anything else, that's not going to work. So we need to be in the sunlight, and we need to realize a few other things. One of those things is that for every death caused by sunlight exposure or diseases that are related to sunlight exposure, there are 328 deaths caused by diseases of sunlight deprivation, 328 to 1. And the the powers that be, the people that I call the powers of darkness, are still insisting that we need to get out of the sun. And they're killing millions of people worldwide. Having realized these things, those were the reasons that I went not away from vitamin D, but realized that I needed to write a book that was vitamin D and beyond. And that's what uh, this book is about, embracing the sun, so that you get the holistic effects of sunlight, not just one or two or maybe none in some cases well thank you for that summary and uh, you know i definitely 
actually wanted to go back to it a little bit uh, with respect to the nitric oxide and uh, take off, uh, discuss that a bit more and then go on to some of the other reasons, which I think are really a foundational component of the book and where I think everyone would benefit from picking up a copy of your book, Embrace the Sun. But as I understand it, the ultraviolet, near, ultraviolet A and the near-infrared both increase the nitric oxide. So you've got it on both ends of the spectrum. And uh, the near-infrared also increases the cytochrome C oxidase and the, the fourth cytochrome in the mitochondria. So benefits that you don't get from swallowing a pill. Yes, you can't get them. Uh, even a, you know, a sun lamp is going to be better in some cases than mm -hmm. trying to take one pill. Sun lamp will do more for you. And you're the expert on infrared. That's the next thing I'd like to get into, but I, I can't yeah. speak intelligently to that, so I'll leave that one to you. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just in love with near-infrared, and I think it has so many good benefits. And <clears throat> just as an extension, I don't know of that uh, uh, concern embracing that, that value of the sun. 40% of the wavelengths of sun exposure are near-infrared. 40% of the sunlight is near-infrared. Come to some, you know, if you're rational, you think there might be some value there. But I want to get back to the central purpose of your book, which it was a, which was news to me, and I'd always wondered why, why on earth would there be such a conspiracy against with modern medicine of having us avoid the sun? It just doesn't make any sense until I read your book. You know, I, I didn't understand what the motivation was. So uh, I'll let you explain that in great detail because you go into it and uh, it, it opened my eyes as to what was behind this conspiracy. Well, the powers of darkness, as I call them, are uh, very highly invested in the sunscreen industry. Um, about 70% of the funding comes from the sunscreen industry. And of course, with the dermatological, dermatological society, we find out that they are backed by or they back, I should say, those who produce sunscreen. So we've got a vast uh, conspiracy with the sunscreen industry, and that's one of the main things. Besides, I have never felt that uh, most physicians, and this I'm not throwing in, into, all into one basket, but most physicians are not that interested in keeping people well, or should I say medicine in general, because if they do get people well, and sunlight will do that to a great extent, they're out of business. And so there is a conspiracy out there. I've written a, a very large chapter that you've obviously read about that uh, and how they use their anti-sun to keep people sick. And so I hope that's a good enough explanation for it. That's well, kind of I would just like to elaborate on that a bit because I'm not convinced that the vast majority of physicians are uh, conspiring in that, that model. Uh, that they are well-intentioned. They're just merely misinformed and, and ignorant for the most part. That uninformed. They, well, misinformed, uninformed. Yeah, I yes. guess that's pretty similar because yes. the, uh, they have the facts in their information incorrect. Uh, and it's largely based on a model that the, the powers that be, these powers of darkness as you refer to them as, uh, have literally uh, captured the whole educational intervention system from the... Mm -hmm peer-reviewed medical journals to the uh, faculties at the institutions who are teaching this. So it's, all, it's really, really hard to come out there objectively and graduate with a, with a comprehensive uh, view that more represents the truth. And it's going to be completely biased towards a pharmacological and surgical paradigm. So, yeah. so but I don't think that physicians know that and are actively seeking to, uh, not let their patients know if they knew and truly believed that they would let them know most most physicians i'm pretty convinced they just don't know uh, that's true and uh, things are changing for the better however i i know a physician here in town a dermatologist in fact who talked to a friend of mine because the guy was afraid of getting melanoma and this this dermatologist believe it or not said if you want to prevent melanoma get out and get yourself a good tan i about fell on the floor i thought boy things are changing they are becoming a little more informed than they used to be. Yeah, so why don't you expand on that uh, comment that you just made? Because it's typically the basis for which most dermatologists and other professionals, but primarily dermatologists, are radically encouraging their 
patients to avoid this done because of this risk of melanoma. And basically there's two different types of skin cancer, two general types, the melanoma and non-melanoma. And it really having a foundational or really understanding of this would go a long way towards defending your position among others who are really concerned about the skin cancer because that's the central argument that's being used to encourage people to stay out of the sun and receive all the benefits. Yes. Well, one point that those physicians should understand is that 75% of all melanoma occurs on areas of the body that never see the sun. We also need to understand that back in 1935, about one in 1,500 people would succumb to melanoma, not succumb necessarily, but we contract melanoma. Today, it's one in 50. So there's been a 3,000% increase in the risk of getting melanoma during that time. Well, which, uh, Mark, Mark, which time frame are you referring to again? Well, 1935 up to the present, basically. Okay. I think my last figures may have actually been about 2002, but I don't think it's changed much. We're still getting more melanoma each year. And the more we use sunscreen, the more melanoma we get. Uh, Australia has proven that for many, many years. They use more sunscreen than any people on earth. And yet they have the highest degree of melanoma and, and they keep making the same mistake every year. Give people, get people out of the sun. And then the people, what happens is they get more melanoma. So what I'm saying is that Melanoma increased by 3,000% between 1935 and let's say 2002, 2003. So that's a tremendous increase. And, 90, and uh, sun exposure during that time by my government figures has gone down by over 90%. So we have a 90% decrease in sun exposure and a 3,000% increase in melanoma. How does that add up for their theory? It doesn't add up at all. And, and they are beginning to realize that, I think, uh, little by little, but still they're in that hip pocket of the medical schools that promote sunscreens and such. I don't know if yeah. I have a question. Well, why don't you connect, <laughs> connect the dots, though, and, and add in to, uh, the additional variable to the equation with respect to the decrease in the sun exposure, the increase in the incidence of melanoma, but what happened with the use of sun screens. Same mathematics and it's exponential increase in sunscreen with a 90% uh, decrease in sun exposure. Part of that sun exposure decrease of course could be due to the sunscreens themselves but today I grew up on a ranch and I ran tractors and so forth and I was out without my shirt or I was out on a horse chasing cattle and I got all the sunlight I could, you could possibly imagine. I should have melanoma four times because I'm a blue-eyed, light-skinned Caucasian. But I never got it because sun it protects us from melanoma. It does not protect us from the common skin cancers. They will increase, provided all else is equal and all else shouldn't be equal. We should be stuffing ourselves with high antioxidant foods. And I think you're a fan of curcumin. Curcumin is something that people should be taking every day because of its antioxidant properties. And if we do that, then we can also put a halt to the common skin cancers, which are sunlight sensitive, all else being equal. But if you're going to bet on getting one or another, we know that people who have more common skin cancers actually have far less melanoma. That was some uh, research that Dr. Grant, who you know, did uh, many years ago, and it's absolutely correct. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of polyphenols like curcumin, but Absolutely. you've got to be careful. It's, it's, it, I'm, I'm much more inclined to get them from foods uh, and then let your body figure out how to use it. But it's all about the timing too. So I do use curcumin, but I tend to use it at night because it tends ah, to be a process called autophagy. And autophagy is from two Greek words, meaning uh, from auto, uh, meaning self, and then phagin, meaning eat. So it's self-eating. And mm -hmm. it describes a process in your body where you get rid of damaged and defective cellular parts that essentially are targeted and directed towards lysosomes which digest them. Now, what, the reason I mentioned autophagy in this, because uh, literally last week I was flying to Las Vegas to give a presentation in front of a few thousand doctors and read a study that surprised me, but I was so excited because guess what? else increases this incredibly valuable process called autophagy. Sun exposure. 
Uh-huh. So isn't that amazing? So that's not in your book because it's relatively new research, but it's really surprised the heck out of me that, that sun exposure could, well, it wasn't surprising. It was just, I guess, well, it was surprising to a certain extent, but I had no idea that it was it provided that additional benefit. So that's another reason to be in the sun. So, uh, but I want paper. you to go <laughs> I'd love to see that paper. Yeah, I can send it to you. That's easy. It was, a, it was a nice review in Autophagy. And what actually the other thing that did, did, did it was, was surprising, what I didn't realize was, was exercise. So aside from a whole variety of important polyphenols and, and fasting, intermittent fasting. But um, the, I'd like to go back to the non-melanoma skin cancers, which are primarily, primarily divided into basal cell and squamous cell cancer. So can you give us statistics on those? Because sun exposure will, will increase your risk of those cancers. But yes. that's not necessarily something to be concerned about. So why don't you cite the statistics and give us some reassurance? Because what I remember from your book is only 1,500 people a year die from these types of cancers, and these are almost all immunocompromised people, pretty sick people. Yes, you have to be sick to die of a common skin cancer. Your immune system is not working, and that's uh, you do have a chance of death. And, and you're right, 1,500 people per year die of common skin cancers, and uh, I don't remember what the, how many people die of melanoma right now, but I know it's many, many times that high. And uh, many times you see a paper that is trying to fool you. They say, okay, skin cancer, and they throw it all into one box. And they say, so you don't, and uh, what they're really talking about is the research has been done on common skin cancer. And, but they think, so many people believe that common skin cancer turns into melanoma. Absolutely not true. As I mentioned, people with more of it, more common skin cancer get less melanoma. So if you're going to bet, you bet against the common skin cancer or against melanoma and for the common skin cancer. Um, beyond that, did, you, did I care for that? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm gonna probably, I'm gonna look up some statistics, make sure I didn't miss anything. But, uh, you know, th- I just wanna bring home this point because it's so important. And I just wanna emphasize statistics. I think this is the central reason and the justification that physicians use to encourage people to avoid the sun. And that is that if by exposing your skin to the sun, you will decrease, decrease your risk of melanoma. Exactly. This is what's going to kill you. And it's going to, why does it do it? Primarily, we think, because it increases vitamin D. Probably other factors too, but that's the primary one. And then you increase your risk of the others, but these are non-dangerous skin cancers. 1,500 people die every year. And for every one of those 1,500 people, most of who are already immunocompromised, we're going to die from something else anyway. Yes. But most of those, for every one of those people, you're going to have to, over 300, I think it's 326, the number you quote in your book, others who are going to die from other diseases as a result of vitamin D deficiency, like cancer and heart disease. Yes, that uh, I mentioned to you earlier, that's 328 to 1. Yeah. Three, uh, that's the way it works. For every person that dies of a, well, not necessarily a common skin cancer, there are other things like lip cancer and a couple of others that do relate to sunlight exposure. But uh, most of them do not, and therefore you're finding out, yes, there are a few, that's the one, and the 328 is the ones who have their life saved by sunlight exposure. Okay, so let's get, you know, we're touting sunlight exposure, and there's loads and loads and loads of benefits. We just touched on the surface of some of them. But many of us, or many people watching this video, aren't able to get sun exposure, adequate sun exposure on their skin, which is where it counts. You can be outside, but if you just have your face exposed, it's not really going to work too well. So let's get into the, the details. Fortunately, by the time of this video is airing, it'll be summer for most people in the Northern uh, Hemisphere. Uh, but in the winter, which is usually starts from October to March or so in most of the country, you're, gonna have, you're not going to be able to get enough UVB exposure on your skin. And it's certainly not going to be warm enough to get the sunlight on your skin. So I, I think uh, the magic latitude here is 35 degrees. Now, I think also 75% right. of the population of the planet lives in the Northern Hemisphere. It's a relatively small number of people live in the Southern Hemisphere, but it's the same way. So either you're 
north of 35 or south of 35 degrees in, in the winter is not going to work. So uh, you could look that up, but, what, but just tell us where the, uh, that line runs across the country from. Well, from uh, LA to Atlanta, basically. You've got the line, if you're south of that line, you can get at least some vitamin D in the winter, but uh, south of that line, you may need to get out right at noon to do it. And the farther south you go, of course, the easier it is to get the vitamin D from the sunlight. But north of that line, you're not going to get any. However, you are getting lots of other photo products like VDNF and uh, nitric oxide and others will be produced uh, even in the winter. So I tan every day, even in St. George, Utah, maybe 40 degrees outside, I step into my, uh, because we've got a lot of sunlight, even if it gets cold. So I step into the garage, so I'm protected from the breezes, and I get out in the sun every day. It's not doing me a bit of good for vitamin D. But I do have my own tanning bed. So I can go in that tanning bed, and it produces a dramatic amount of vitamin D. So will a good vitamin D sunlamp do that for you in the winter? So if I'm worried about that, and I'd rather do that, I'm not, sometimes I fudge and take a vitamin D pill, but I would rather do that because it's going to be a lot more natural than taking a vitamin D pill, in my opinion. So th those are the, that's the way that I do it, and I think everybody should. Of course, the tanning bed has been much maligned it uh, dramatically increases bone strength, dramatically increases vitamin D levels, reduces the risk of uh, psoriasis and eczema, and uh, does many other things that they never give any credit for. In my, my uh, site called sunlightinstitute.org, I write something about uh, one of these uh, subjects about every single week and mention that I do like to get out in the sun even excuse, in the winter if there's any sun available. If there isn't, then you're left with a tanning bed, sun lamp that produces vitamin D or whatever for the winter. So you hit on a good point. You live in St. George, Utah, which is considerably north of the 35 degree latitude, but the variable that we neglected to mention was altitude. And for every thousand foot of elevation, you're going to get a 4% increase in UVB up to 8,000 feet, and then it goes up to 8 to 10% increase per 1,000 feet. So what's your altitude? Altitude here is 3,000 feet. However, okay, so you don't, you're not getting that much. You're getting like 12% increase. No, and I'd have to do it right at the right time of day. Yeah, yeah. If I got out right at noon, which only lasts maybe a few minutes in the winter. But that's interesting because I own a ranch that's just 6,500 feet. And mm -hmm. I go out there, it's in Nevada, north of Vegas, for, by about a four-hour drive. But it's very high. And I can also go up Wheeler Peak, which is right next to it, which is 13,060 feet. And that's where you have to be a little uh, yes. careful about sunburning. Because I get up there, and I always have with, I have in one of my church shirts, uh, church shirts, that's hard to say. And I have some white gloves, everything very light, and I have a big hat. And when I'm hiking at 13,000 feet and I start to feel even a little bit of heat or I watch my skin and it becomes the slightest bit red, I immediately put all those things on and go continue my hike. I get myself out of the sun at that time, which I think is God's way. Now, I don't know if I had this in the book, but uh, there was, uh, well, this is, this, my mind skipped to another subject. I was just thinking about the new study on Parkinson's disease also mm -hmm. that showed People who are out in the bright sun daily, regularly, have one-fiftieth, one-fiftieth the risk of ever getting Parkinson's. I don't know if you saw that as fairly new research or not. I was stunned by that research. I know I had written in the book about Parkinson's, but I hadn't seen that much of a change. But up in, the, if up in those mountains, you do have to be careful, and I am, because altitude, as you said, every thousand feet, boy, it gets more and more intense. But that's good. You get a lot more vitamin D. And so it's, uh, you know, that is. Uh, but like any, it's like anything in life, there's a Goldilocks stove. So you need a yeah. certain sweet spot. And if you get too much, it's dangerous. And mm -hmm. neither of us, no rational person is recommending or endorsing ever, ever getting sunburned. And to listen to your body, if you have the slightest bit of pink, get out of the sun. Don't throw on sunscreen. Just get out of the sun, ideally a shirt or some sunscreen blocking material. But I get in the shade. You do not need extra sun because you have maxed out your benefit. There is no additional benefit. No. And there's only danger. You're going the to body cause... shuts it down at that point. In fact, 
the body will shut down your vitamin D production and uh, along with anything else that it doesn't want. There is a very interesting uh, piece of research that came out, oh, I would say eight weeks ago, that shows that people who use sunscreen have anywhere from three to six times the risk of getting sunburned. Have you heard that one? Three to six times the risk of sunburning with sunscreen. And another yeah. one was a big well, analysis showed that there was no uh, benefit whatsoever in uh, using sunscreens, uh, none at all. In fact, there was a slight increase in the risk of, of uh, skin cancers, all skin cancers together. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the sunscreens for a bit because I believe there's an important differentiation. I'm not sure what the current status on them is because I know the initial ones, they really only screened for UVB. They did not screen for UVA. That's the way it used to be, yes. Yeah, so I don't know what the current status is. I'm sure there's, there's some <clears throat> still have those types of similar formulations where they're not letting the UVB that makes the vitamin D come in and they're allowing the UVA to penetrate, which causes skin cancer. So do you know the current state of the, the percentages of the sunscreens that, that do that? No, I do not know. However, I do know they've changed a lot because of what you were quoting there. Most of them are trying to be full spectrum blockers now trying to uh, get both UVA and UVB blocked in the sunlight. And they say that they're doing it, but I have not seen anything that would indicate that sunscreen is preventing melanoma in any way. Yeah, I want to get back to the melanoma too, because Dr. Frank Garland, who you um, quoted earlier uh, and in your book, uh, really described melanoma as a risk factor for sedentary office workers. Who works in yes. no sunshine, but primarily fluorescent indoor lighting, which has no ultraviolet A or B. B would be the primary one, but it also has these digital spikes of primarily blue light that cause lots of problems. And in addition to that, can will generate dirty electricity about 62,000 hertz or 62 kilohertz and put that into your body. So that combination, is, especially with combined with being inactive is a good prescription to increase your risk for melanoma. And breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and breast cancer. Both of them are increased by that type of lighting. Now, have you, have you done any, found any studies that correlate <clears throat> the actual production of vitamin D in the skin on the breast that would support a woman, of course, to do this in private, but to sunbathe her breast? Sometimes uh, I see some very interesting uh, research, like the most interesting piece of research to me on breast cancer and sunlight is one that actually came out of Iran. Uh, they found that that the women who are wearing burqa or whatever it is that... Burqa. Yeah. So that those who are using that and never get out in the sun have exactly 10 times the risk of breast cancer as those who get out in the sun in just a normal way. So now whether those others are sunbathing nude on the beach where they get the breast exposed, I don't know. It just says women who were seeking the sun versus these that absolutely got no sun. 10 times. I mean, you were talking about 1,000% greater risk of breast cancer and women are being frightened out of the sun all the time. This is, it's ridiculous. So that's, that's probably the best I could quote right then. I don't know if you saw the Iranian study, but that was amazing. Yeah, I did. I read about it in your book. Yeah. So the... Uh... You know, there's, that is one of the key components of vitamin D therapy, especially for breast cancer, is to make sure, and breast cancer recurrence, because there's so many women who get treated but fail to pay ser careful, serious attention to their vitamin D levels and get them in the optimal range, because if they don't, their likelihood of breast cancer recurrence increases dramatically. And I think that's probably the sing single biggest variable to prevent breast cancer recurrence and also for primary prevention. It's not getting a mammogram or even a thermogram that's going to prevent the breast cancer. It's making sure that your vitamin D levels are optimized. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you probably read my book too or knew it yourself already that you can produce 20,000 international units in 20 minutes of unobstructed sun exposure on both sides of the body. 20,000 international units in your typical pill. What's it got? Six, 800 uh, international units of vitamin D now. And they're wondering why some of the vitamin D studies don't work very well because they're not, it's like uh, trying to pour food coloring in the ocean and change the ocean. There's not enough there to make the difference in many cases. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even there was a study published earlier this year, which we did an article, lead article on, showing that high dose vitamin D didn't work. Well, high dose was 2,000 units. And even if it was 5,000 or 8,000 or even 10,000, it's almost irrelevant because you don't know what the dose the person needs unless you measure their blood levels. And in this study, they never measured blood levels. Yes. So of course they're not going to get a significant results and they're going to, you know, it made white, it was the media ate that up and had it all over the headlines of the newspapers that vitamin D doesn't work when in reality is the study was fatally flawed. Yes, they don't know. Like you said, they don't know if it works. And as we mentioned before, 20,000 international units and then the body will shut you down if you don't need any more of that. That's what you should be getting because that's a natural way. You can be toxic with too much vitamin D, but never with the sun. The sun will never make you toxic. Yeah, it's got its own built-in safeguards. So one of the other benefits, uh, well, you probably would get this benefit from an oral vitamin D supplement too, but again, we're, we're both strong advocates of getting it from the sun. And personally, I have not swallowed a vitamin D supplement in over 10 years, and my vitamin D rarely ever goes below 60 nanograms per ml. And it might get into the high 50s in the middle of the winter. Uh, but I live in Florida, so that's, that's easy for me to do. But one of the benefits is that it radically decreases your risk of autoimmune disease. That's a disease that your body identifies proteins and, and other structures in your, in your self that I, I, as foreign, and it tends to self-destruct them. So the classic examples would be MS, uh, and uh, would be the classic one, uh, and type 1 uh, diabetes. So you have a quote in your book about type 1 diabetes in Finland that the child there is 400 times, 400 times more likely to get type 1 diabetes, which is a terrible, terrible disease, and universally, at least in the past, was a prescription for dying prematurely. I think that will change in the next decade or so when we develop some really novel technologies, essentially to recreate a, uh, a pancreas that, to pro provide this, this feedback, this hormonal feedback to optimize uh, glucose levels. But right now, it's dangerous and 400 times more than a child born in Venezuela. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. You've got, um, there was one study on vitamin D supplementation there in Finland that did show uh, it was five or six times less apt to, uh, to get or type 1 diabetes. But then if you take a look at people who are really getting the sun, it goes from six times to 400 times, like you said. So if you want to take a look at the best way to do it, of course, you always get out in the sunlight, which is the natural way to do things. You have probably the most popular natural health uh, website on the web. And uh, so I know that you like natural things. And the fact that you won't do a vitamin D pill really tells me you like natural things. But if you live down in Florida, I think you used to be in Chicago, didn't you? But mm -hmm. living in Florida, I sure did. Now, you probably get every day of your life where you live, I imagine you can get all the vitamin D when uh, you want out, out on the beach. Uh, so yeah, that's a that is. I had almost. I'm glad you mentioned that. I need to read my own book again because I had so much information. I almost forgot about that. There are uh, uh, a couple of other absolutely stunning. Well, another one is the incidence of MS, which is not quite as dramatic, but is one I've known of for a long time. I think that's, that was Dr. Garland's epidemiological research also that pretty definitively proved, and this was well, well before the advent of uh, vitamin D supplements. I mean, they did existed, but they weren't more than 400 units. So this was just clear epidemiological observations. People were not swallowing vitamin D supplements. They were just getting their vitamin D levels optimized through sun exposure. And what he found was the incidence of MS, devastating neurological disease, was 100, not 400, but 100 times higher in the Norman, northern latitudes than it was where sunlight was intense. Yes, it, it virtually disappears at the equator, that disease. There is none. I mean, if you look down Ecuador, you're going to find virtually zero MS. And it's really interesting when you plot it on a graph because it just keeps getting higher and higher in this incidence as you go farther and farther north where the sunlight gets less. Absolutely. One of the great studies uh, by the Garlands, no doubt. Yeah. And then, interestingly, Michael Hollick, who's probably the premier 
uh, vitamin D researcher in the world, as far as most people, at least most experts would acknowledge. Uh, and and uh, I've had the pleasure of connecting with him on several occasions, personally and, uh, uh, and professionally. And he has done some interesting research, recorded a book that I wasn't aware of that, but it makes sense. It actually increases, sunlight exposure does, increases dopamine. Yes, yes. He's the only one that mentions that almost besides what I put in my book. And I had to go to him for that. You, you probably noticed that he wrote the foreword for my book. Dr. Yes. Yes. So that dopamine, in case you didn't remember, is a neurotransmitter that makes you feel good. It's actually, in some cases, really counterproductive because it motivates people to get to some of these addictive behaviors and they're increasing their dopamine levels in unhealthy ways. But a healthy way to do it is just simply get yourself out in the sun. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Dopamine is so important. Yeah. That's, and I, you're right. You're uh, correct. I did live in Chicago, but the reason I moved to Florida is to get one of the, one of the primary motivation is to be comfortable in the winter, not have to fly to Hawaii to get sunlight, but to, so to really optimize my vitamin D exposures. And you do, you can't get vitamin D here every day of the year. It's not necessary because vitamin D is, is a fat soluble steroid hormone that sticks in your fat cells and there's a buffer so that you you know it's not sunny here every day of the, of the year and of course not most of it is you know it's pretty <laughs> uncommon i would say less than five percent of the days where you can't get good sun exposure but very much so, like saint george <laughs> yeah yeah so so the days that you you aren't getting the sun exposure you know the the vitamin d that you need is, is leached out of the cells and your body uses it and that's why you want to be let's go over the the, the ideal optimal range but my understanding and what I recommend is 60 to 80 because the level, and I forget the researcher who did this, but it was an interesting study in breastfeeding women. But if the levels got below 40, that was the problem. So, so sort of give yourself a buffer. If you get it up to 60, then yes. it's rare. You're just not going to go below a level that your body's not going to have sufficient vitamin D to do whatever it needs to do. That's true. My my numbers are just a little bit different. The 40, I, I can't remember who does that, who did that research, but they found out that at Bruce, 40... It was Bruce. Bruce was the first name. Bruce Hollis. Bruce Hollis, yes. You get, then there's no uh, you know, vitamin D3 in the blood. You have just the active form at that time rather than the vitamin D3 that will be converted into it. So right there, you know that your, pro your body's probably taking all it's need and converting it into... 125 OHD, and that's all that you need. So, uh, yeah, that was a great thing. But we, I wrote a book, uh, I didn't get credit for it because he bought me out, but John Connell, I'm, who I'm sure you're familiar with, sure. John Connell and I wrote a book uh, called uh, The Athlete's Edge, Bigger, Stronger, Faster. Oh, sure, yeah, he was widely promoting that. Yes, and uh, so I was really the co-author, and then he decided he wanted to buy, buy the book from me. So I I sold it to him. But one thing that we found out that surprised me is that athletic performance and risk of falling and all those things that the non-athlete would be interested in too, they, they got better up to about 63 nanograms. Beyond that, there was an S-curve and they went back and got a little bit worse. So I've always said, I want mine to be at 63, 65, but- Interesting. So, so explain that a little more detail because I must've missed that in the book. Sorry about that. Yes. Once the vitamin D levels went past 64 nanograms per milliliter, then uh, you had an S-curve in, in terms of falling and a few other things that were not okay. good. So you became less apt to fall until about an 60. Was this I like 60, but 60 is my favorite. Okay, so is that in athletes or uh, in the general population? Athletes, the both. Athletes and in the general population. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So maybe 60 to 65 would be the sweet spot. Uh, well, it would. However, I must say that people who are preventing breast cancer, theirs does seem to go up to 80. So yeah. what, are you, what are you gonna say, you know? <laughs> Well, and breast cancer is not an insignificant risk, as is heart disease. And I believe more women, significantly more women, I forget this, is just this actual number, but it certainly increases as you get older, but more women die from heart disease than breast cancer. Oh, absolutely. Yes, uh, that's, that's the number one killer for women. And, and uh, the medical societies tend to think that that's just a, something that women don't have to worry about. A lot of, I've heard physicians say, well, women don't have to worry about that very much about heart disease when uh, they're more apt in fact if they get heart disease they're more apt to die than a man if they have a lot of plugging of the arteries so 
it's very, very important. However, I think if you get an 80 nanograms per milliliter, maybe saying that's the max a woman should get, get it from the sunlight, of course. Yeah. Realize that along with that, you maybe the reason that 80 is better for them is because every single one of those women that has an 80 is probably getting it from the sunlight, which produces nitric oxide, which keeps mm -hmm. the muscles clear and increases yes. circulation. Could that be the reason? And of course, at the same time, getting all of that sunlight maybe brings them up to 80. And I believe that if we get 80 with the sunlight, there is no danger because you know God, nature, whatever you prefer, yes. knows how to shut down the bad things that might happen if you get a little bit high the natural way. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say because that's probably the differentiation. When I say 60 to 80, I'm talking 60 to 80 from sunlight, not from swallowing a pill. Difference, massive difference between the two. And if you're going to do it with a pill, then you probably are going to want to stick to 60, 65. Uh, and, you know, part of it may be just the way you feel because another neurotransmitter that's impacted by sunlight exposure is serotonin. And we know depression is epidemic in this country. We've got so many people taking SSRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And why not just get into the sun and increase your serotonin levels? <laughs> yeah, and afterwards, you're not going to get, go out and shoot up the schoolyard either if you take, get it the natural way. Yes. Which is very, very important. Serotonin, I don't know, you probably saw the study by Lambert that I uh, yeah. quoted in my book eight times. If you spend the entire day in bright sunlight, your serotonin levels will increase by 800%. Try doing that with one of those antidepressants. Yes, and you know, aside from the way you feel, you know, the other value of serotonin is it's the immediate precursor, I believe, for melatonin, which you need to lower your risk for cancer, but also help you sleep better. And we know the good quality sleep is just important for just about all aspects of life. Absolutely, and of course the problem is most people do it backwards, don't they? Mm -hmm. They are uh, coming in with their blue light at night and so forth, and they have uh, uh, melatonin is the wrong type of day, wrong time of day, and so they get woozy and out of sorts. Daytime, they're out of sync, and of course, when we get the sinking in, we also know that the circadian rhythm, which relates very closely, in my opinion, to the things that we're talking about should be reset in the morning. If you've got bright light available, you should reset it every morning with bright light so that your whole physiological system works better than it would otherwise. It is so important to get in the sunlight. You and I both agree. No wonder I wanted to do an interview with you. <laughs> You're a very intelligent person. You believe just like I do. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, and, but it's more in them believing. It's actually, when I lecture, I accuse many of the professional groups I lecture to of FTI, which is my acronym for failure to implement. So there's one thing of knowing it. There's a second thing of implementing what you know. Yes. And so many people, including healthcare professionals, physicians and such, uh, just don't implement what they already know to, to make themselves healthier. Yes. Well, I must say one thing about you, Dr. Mercola. You implement yours. I can tell because you're one of the healthiest looking men I've ever seen in my life. Well, thank you. It's, it's really a goal of mine, and I've been blessed <laughs> to be in a position where a lot of the heavy lifting for our business and everything is such done by other people who help me out. So I yeah. can research things and really can take committed, dedicated time to keeping myself healthy, which is several hours a day. Yeah. But I want to get back to the benefits of the sun exposure. And we have an epidemic of visual dysfunction, people needing glasses in an early age, which is called myopia, and then in a, a later age, which is called presbyopia, you know, the ability to, to need the reading glasses. So we've got an epidemic of both. And why don't you talk about how the sun influences our, our visual ability? Well, particularly with myopia, one of the studies was done uh, comparing people who uh, we're in Singapore to people who grew up in Australia, the same ethnic background, basically Oriental Asian background. We found out that, that those uh, who were playing in the sun in Australia had about one-sixth the risk of ever getting myopia. So it is so important. We don't get out and we don't focus with the sun. We don't look into the distance. That may be one of the reasons we don't get enough vitamin D. We don't get enough serotonin, nitric oxide, uh, any of the other photo products that are produced by the sun. And there is a tremendous uh, 
what is there? I would call it, it's not epidemic because the epidemic has to be caught from one person to another, but there's a pandemic for sure. Pandemic, yes. Yeah. Yeah, there is a pandemic of myopia and we're seeing it here in the United States, but the Asian kids, oh my goodness, do they have a pandemic. And it will lead, in many cases, they get older, it will lead to 100% blindness. And of course, they always talk about macular degeneration and so forth. Well, there's kind of a dichotomy here uh, because if you have uh, macular degeneration, they tell you to totally stay out of the sun, and it does tend to relate to sun exposure. At the same time, vitamin D levels that are high tend to reduce the risk. So what do you do? Stop getting your sun and take a vitamin D pill? I don't think so. I think if we're in the sun the way we ought to be and eating the polyphenols and so forth, foods with the polyphenols and other antioxidants that we can, like the curcumin and so forth, I think that's probably the way to prevent most of the older age diseases. Now, as far as presbyopia, I want you to school me here, Dr. McCullough, because I have it. I've had it since I was about 40. And I just take uh, reading glasses, and I can get along with reading my fine print and everything with those, but I wasn't able to escape it, and it runs in my family. So I think there must be some genetic component there, because I was out in the sun, and I never had any myopia. I was out in the sun driving tractors, chasing down the cows on horses and so forth in the ranch where I grew up. And, uh, but I couldn't escape the farsightedness. And uh, I don't know if you have it. How old did you say you were, Mark? I'll be 76 this year. Okay, well, that's, you know, it's getting up there with respect to uh, increasing risk of presbyopia. But mm -hmm. before we go there and answer your question, I just want to get back to the, the leading cause of blindness in the U.S., which is age-related macular degeneration. And I'm actually interviewing Dr. Chris Kenobi, who's an MD ophthalmologist and wrote a book on specifically how the risk factors and why people get age-related macular degeneration. It is just a... a it, a massive compilation of data. He did, he was a real scholarly work. We went back and looked at all these ancient uh, ophthalmology textbooks and essentially did not exist. It did not exist before 1930. Mm -hmm. It seems to be an artifact of not necessarily lack of sun exposure, but primarily processed foods and specifically the processed vegetable oils. And uh, the sugars, of course, didn't help. So that combination is just causing this massive degeneration and, and actually, uh, it's very difficult to reverse once it becomes advanced, but if, you know you get it at an early stage, you can if you pay attention to the diet. And he's got some really brilliant descriptions in the book. But getting back to presbyopia, um, the the issue here, I mean, clearly sunlight exposure is one. Not wearing glasses. You know, I walk on the beach every day. Pretty much, I'm in Florida when I'm traveling. Obviously, I can't. But unless it's miserable weather, so maybe for ten to fifteen. 10, maybe 10, 12, 14 days of, of the year that I'm living here that I don't walk on the beach because it's a thunderstorm or it's just like 40, degrees, you know, 40 <laughs> mile an hour winds. Yeah. So, but pretty, or hurricane, but pretty much I'm out there, but I can't tell how many people I see making basic mistakes. First of all, they're wearing too many clothes. Uh, they're walking with shoes on. They're not getting the benefits of the grounding, which you can get in North America if you're ground, if you're walking near the ocean. I'm a big uh, believer in that, just like you are. Yeah, well, it becomes a problem if you're inland uh, or in your dense urban area because of dirty electricity. But certainly in the ocean, it's not a problem. But then here's the big thing. They're wearing sunglasses. So uh, that's a key thing. You don't ever really want to wear sunglasses unless you're like at St. George and it's snowing out and you're getting this reflection from the sun. Then you act, then you excess. You want to really be sundown when you have to look directly into the sun. Yes, because you, you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, essentially don't wear sunglasses and then don't wear reading glasses, which is just a prescription for disaster. And, you know, as you age, there's a <laughs> tendency to want to make that font bigger on your computer so that you can see it better or your Kindle, but mm -hmm. you've got to resist that temptation because it's, it's like almost going to a walker, you're being handicapped and you're going to make the vision worse. So you've got to exercise it and keep it at this, at, you know, the, the font at the same size. Uh, so I don't know if you've been wearing reading glasses, but that will definitely take your, make your vision worse. Boy, I've got, yes, I have. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, stop that. Yeah, so I would ditch those as soon as you can, or at least progressively go down. And then instead of squinting to see, the key mm -hmm. thing is to just avoid squinting you just completely. And instead, just blink. 
blink multiple times until it make it clear. And then it'll relax your eyes and it'll refocus. And then you can start to read it. And it's just, I'm telling you, I mean, I read my Kindle at, at the lowest or the next to lowest scenting, unless it's really kind of uh, dark. And if you, it, this is the key to light. So if you have hard, difficult to read fonts or like you're in a restaurant and you can't read the menu, just put a little light on it. You don't need a magnifying glass. Don't get the magnifying glass out, get the light because the more light you put on it, the easier it's gonna be to see. I've noticed that. I think that uh, during this interview, I've just received the most important counsel for myself that I could have gotten. I'm going to, to start doing what you said immediately. Yes. Well, you know, I'm 65 now and I, I don't wear reading glasses. I started to wear them in the mid forties or started to perceive the need for it. And then I met a guy in a cruise that we went on, uh, Larry Clapp, who uh, was wrote a book on prostate cancer. And he was in his mid sixties. He's since passed, uh, I think from prostate cancer actually. But um, he, when we had this cruise, like everyone was Oh, everyone there was over than 40 and almost everyone had reading glasses on except for him. And he was like 65. I said, this, this guy knows something. <laughs> so he taught me some of the details and then I learned a lot and did some, did some training, but there's more details. But anyway, I don't want to hog up the conversation here because this is about the value of sun and that's sort of an artifact. Uh, so we talked about the athletic performance, which is another interesting thing. Let's talk about historical components because you know, it's not like the ancients knew everything, but we can learn some pearls of wisdom from their practices um, because, you know, our genes don't change much over a hundred or thousands of years. They change very slowly, so we're probably adapted to it. So let's talk about the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians' uh, relationship with the sun. Oh, yes. Interesting thing. I know what you're referring to, and I don't even remember which group it was, but one of the groups, uh, they, they looked at uh, uh, the thickness of the skull of people who had been killed in some of these wars. And those that were always wearing something on the head to protect them against sun or the blows of the enemy and so forth like that, they, they didn't do so well uh, because their heads were covered. But those who fought with bare heads and so forth, they had several times the strength of bone. Uh, thickness of bone when they took a look at that. Whatever they did for ancient autopsies at that time, I don't know, but there was definitely a correlation between bone strength and uh, and the amount of sunlight that they would have been getting in those days. Um, and yeah, that's as far as athletics are concerned, uh, the Greeks used to train nude for the Olympic Games and so forth. They were really into the sunlight. They didn't wear anything and they'd be out there doing their athletics totally nude, that kind of conjures up a strange scene, but that's what they did. And they felt that they knew clear back at that time, two, two and a half thousand years ago, that that was going to help them. Now, others, not quite, other uh, research, not quite so ancient, is showing that uh, people who are in the sun or get into the sun using uh, the UVB rays and so forth, they are able to decrease their time in something like a hundred yard dash by about three tenths of a second compared to people who do not do that. We probably have uh, probably testosterone increase, which does happen with sunlight exposure and so forth. But if, as, as I said in the book, can you imagine if you're taking a look at world-class athletes and somebody improves the time by even three hundredths of a second, it can be the difference between first and last place because they're so home, so something like that. I'm a great fan of basketball, the Utah Jazz, of course, but I, I have been trying to get them to get out in the sun for some time. I had a, an interview with them, but I never really got them to pick it up and get into tanning beds in the winter or whatever they need to do in Utah. In Salt Lake, there's a lot less sun than there is here in St. George. But I couldn't get them to do it, and I thought the same thing. Let's suppose you're on a fast break, and you can make it down there just one twentieth to one tenth of a second faster than your opponent. That's a basket <laughs> that you wouldn't have made otherwise. You beat the defense or you get down there and you perform the defense. And there are many others uh, that we did and that was in the book that I wrote with John Cannell. Reaction time. We used to do those when I was studying physiology at Brigham Young University. A light would come on and you had to hit something immediately. And they increased or increased, or I should say decreased the reaction time dramatically if they had sunlight 
some of the studies were on vitamin D, but we found some of those things from way back when, 30s and 40s, where vitamin D didn't help, but sunlight did. So I think that's where we, why we have to have the holistic sun again. We, we need to have every single photo products produced. And I was just reading not long ago, and I haven't written down about five more photo products that I haven't even had time to study. We don't know what they do yet, but uh, why would you go for a vitamin D pill when you could get out in the sun and you get all no. of available? Some things we don't even know yet. We need to be in the sunlight. Yeah, so a few comments on that. One is the athletic performance, and especially with basketball players, I'm not sure exactly why, but clearly the majority of them seem to be African-American and have very deeply pigmented skin. And the problem with that is it's great if you're in Africa, but, you know, living in the U.S. is certainly in most northern cities, that just makes it that much more difficult. So that's another variable that will radically increase your need for sun exposure. So rather than someone like yourself who might get a by with 10, 20, 30 minutes, depending on the time of year, they're going to need maybe three to four hours or longer so how dark they are they're yeah. very dark skinned absolutely i can tell you a little uh, anecdote about that if you'd like <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. good friend who's an african-american and uh, he was getting colds and flu a lot in the winter and i said what you need mike is to get into a tanning bed for a long time and he called me about a week later and he was just laughing he said i will have the most interesting experience he said you've never seen so many eyebrows raised as the crew at the tanning salon, when I walked in and told him I wanted to get tanned. <laughs> and, he, and this guy is pretty dark, but I tell you, he would get in there, you know, go for a half hour or so, and it's a little more intense in the tanning bed generally. So, and it helped him, it helped him dramatically. I never heard him talk about colds and flu again once he started doing that. Yeah, yeah, so obviously, no matter what the color of your skin, you're gonna need vitamin D and uh, just being dark and living in the Northern Hemisphere is gonna make it that much more challenging, or at least far from the equator, would might be more accurate. So I wanna get back to take off on the uh, story you shared with the ancient warriors who covered their skull or their head with, uh, with a helmet and had weaker bones there. Uh, that is another strong component to, that really validates the importance of women who are serious about this to find a private spot and sunbathe their breast to get the sunshine on their breast because vitamin d is produced locally it converts a form of cholesterol to the to vitamin d and then it's absorbed into your bloodstream mm -hmm. so yes it can work systemically too but i'm convinced and as your story suggests that there's a strong local effect that if you get, that it's going to it'll work where it's produced. So I, if you can't for whatever reason, it may that may speak to using a vitamin D cream. Yes, let's go back if it's okay for a minute sure. to the sure. strong skulls. Talk about the study in Spain, which we haven't mentioned yet. We got to the skull here. We didn't really talk about uh, the pandemic of osteoporosis and the one study which was you know they have given. Uh, women vitamin D for a long time. Sometimes it doesn't even work, which surprises me. It should work to produce stronger bones, but I don't think they use enough. However, in Spain, women who are sun seekers, those are always out trying to tan, go to where the weather is the best, they can get the sunlight on them all as much as possible. Those women have one eleventh the risk of ever having a hip fracture as women who are avoiding the sun. One eleventh. I mean, that thing alone that one point alone should get every woman out in the sun that exists because everybody is afraid to death, not only of breast cancer, but of osteoporosis. So women need sunlight to prevent it. Whether vitamin D pills will work, I, I am not convinced, and they don't give them enough vitamin D to, so they can really tell in the research. But we know darn well that uh, sunlight works to prevent hip fractures. Boy, that's a big one to me. I couldn't agree more, and I share your concern that swallowing it, even at adequate levels, which raise your vitamin D levels to the appropriate ranges, is going to be insufficient to provide most of the benefits, especially something like osteoporosis. Don't take the, the risk, the chance, get sun exposure uh, would be the best strategy. And I know it's a long-term play. You know, you might be 40, 50 years old, or you're 
you know, somewhere in that range and you can't do it because you've got a family there. Well, when you get older, you can kind of direct where you're going to retire and, and, and you know, really put your body in an environment that's going to give you the, the optimal life. Move your whole family down there. I mean, there's a lot of good states uh, that have good sun exposure and, and essentially no tax rates. So you actually can save in the process, you know, because some of those tax rates in the, the northern states can be pretty atrocious. Yes. One other point that might be interesting, uh, my wife and I for three and a half years had charge of church meetings for a rest home, an assisted care facility. And so we got to really uh, be close to those people. And as soon as you got close to them, they died or something, you know. So mm -hmm. it was an interesting thing. It was very touching. And yet you, you thought, I, when I was finally released from that position, I thought, <laughs> kind of glad to be away because I don't like crying with every person I've gotten to know real well that goes. Uh, but one thing I tried to convince the people of over there at the rest facilities, get your people in the sun. They had a big balcony where they could have gotten people out of the sun. We get about 260 to 300 days of sunlight a year in, here in St. George. Not all day long, but at least where you can get out in. I said, you have, should have your people required to come out and get there. And uh, one of the reasons I was telling them that was a study you may have seen in the book or was in the previous book that you sold for me, is that vitamin D levels uh, dramatically help the brain, of course. People think better when they're like that. And you are three and one half times as likely to end up in a rest home if you do not have a good vitamin D level. And I think it was probably really a sunlight exposure because people were not giving them vitamin D. So those who are got, got out in the sunlight and increased their vitamin D level, and it could have been other photo products. All we know that at least vitamin D was along for the ride, right? It would go up, but maybe it was something else besides that. But three and a half, 350% increased risk of ending up in the rest of them. You've got a mom or dad or uncle or whatever that's about to get there, I think that we could prevent it today. Most people that might be in there a month or two, in my opinion, from what I saw, you could probably prevent that and take, and uh, they'd never have to be there. They could stay at home maybe with a son or daughter and, and uh, not, they wouldn't have to worry about them falling every other second or something. Anyway, yeah. something I thought I would bring up. Uh, that's a good point. And both my parents passed within the last year or two and uh, were in assisted care facilities. And they lived in Chicago. And I was really striving to get them to at least visit down in Florida and ideally move down here and get some regular sun exposure because you just can't get it in the winter. And I'm sure that was a contributing factor to their relative premature passing. Uh, even though my dad lived to be 89, I think could have had a lot more years and my mom certainly could have too. Yes. So. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So amazing information that you provided to us, Mark, and I greatly appreciate you compiling that in the book, Embrace the Sun, which is a really good thing. And again, sort of highlighting one of the components, most and number one cause of death in the U.S. is cardiovascular disease. And it appears that sunlight, not necessarily vitamin D levels that you take from swallowing a pill, but sunlight, probably through the result of increasing nitric oxide levels, lowering blood pressure. Right and increasing the blood flow to your, your organs and your tissues will reduce the risk of heart disease quite dramatically. So that's the keys. So any, any, the book is Embrace the Sun. Any closing words, Mark? Well, I always am reminded of various things. Uh, that it, it is also one of the big problems we have right now is erectile dysfunction. And I believe that one of the major reasons for that is lack of nitric oxide. That's a vasodilator. That's exactly what we need to get rid of that particular problem is vasodilation. And so I think Not Viagra or Cialis. No. <laughs> no, not at all. They use that too. Of course, they use nitric oxide in those products. But no, we don't want that. Well, actually, it's not nitric It stimulates nitric oxide production is what it does. Stimulates There's nitric oxide so many safer ways to do it. Yes. And so exposure being you don't need one of those pills. You need sunlight. Yeah. So with respect to tanning beds, many people may know that the FTC filed a lawsuit against me a few years ago because, not because someone complained about the tanning beds, not because anyone was injured, not because anyone had cancer, but because we failed to warn them that it could, could cause skin cancer, even though it decreases the risk of melanoma. And 
even though 1,500 people die every year from non-melanoma skin cancer, almost all of them are immunocompromised in some way. And for every one of those people who are dead, there's 326 people who die from heart disease or cancer as a result of vitamin D insufficiency. So despite that, they were able to successfully sue me and uh, stop us from selling tanning beds. But interestingly, uh, Mark, you heard about this lawsuit and compiled 40-page reference, which was the inspiration for the book. So why don't you expand on that, please? I thought this is really good. My gosh, the inter what I've gotten here is, would be a great introduction for a book, and people need to know this. So I'm going to do my next book, and it took me nearly two years to write that monster, but it, uh, it came out well, and I, so I thank you again for the fact that I had to write that paper, even though you didn't see it, because that's the reason that I wrote Embrace the Sun. I wouldn't have written it otherwise. So thank you so much for the book, Embrace the Sun, and I would encourage everyone who's found some value in this discussion to pick up a copy because it's really enlightening and hopefully will encourage and motivate you and your family to get into the sun to help you take control of your health. Thank you, Dr. McCullough.